This episode of the Art of Manliness podcast is brought to you in part by Brickle. While being a man is an art form, taking care of your skin doesn't need to be. This year, make the resolution of stepping up your skincare and grooming routine with Brickle Men's products. And right now, you can try 15 of their best sellers for free. Just pay shipping. Go to brickle.link slash manliness to get your sample kit today. That's brickle, B-R-I-C-K-E-L-L dot link, dot link, not dot com, dot link slash manliness to get your free kit today. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. It's a new year, and like many people, you may have set a goal to exercise more regularly. But like most people, you set this goal before only to give up on it after a few weeks. Why is it so hard to make exercise a habit? And more importantly, what can we do to make it stick? My guest today argues that more willpower and discipline isn't the answer. Instead, you need to completely change the way you think about exercise. Her name is Michelle Seeger, and she's a behavioral scientist and the author of No Sweat, How the Simple Science of Motivation Can bring you a lifetime of fitness. We begin our conversation discussing Michelle's counterintuitive finding that common reasons for exercising like losing weight or even getting healthier aren't effective motivations. And she shares research on how our ideas of what exercise should look like, as well as the propensity towards an all or nothing mindset also set us up for failure. We then discuss why sheer discipline isn't very effective for staying on track either and why exercise needs to have an immediately positive impact on our lives if we want to stick with it. Michelle and I spend the rest of her conversation discussing the research-backed framework she's developed to help people make exercise a sustainable habit, which includes less emphasis on willpower and more on changing the meaning you lend to physical activity and its priority in your life. After the show's over, check out our show notes at aom.is slash no sweat. All right, Michelle Seeger, welcome to the show. It's great to be here. So you are a behavioral scientist and you spent your career focusing on how to help people make exercise a sustainable habit. And this is a new year. It's funny. I know a lot of people are making resolutions to exercise more. And I think people have said that every year and it never works out the way they want to. I mean, do you know, like with your research, what's the success or failure rate of most exercise or health goals that people set for themselves? You know, I've, you know, I've worked with people with exercise goals, with healthy eating goals, with sleep goals. And the statistics I know refer specifically to physical activity. And in general, by six months, most people have discontinued their planned exercise. However, when it comes to resolutions, I'm not an expert on this topic, but my understanding is it's much shorter that people drop their resolutions, probably most people within six to eight weeks. And why do the vast majority of fitness or exercise or healthy eating goals, why do they, why do they fail? Why do you think they fail? Are you talking about New Year's specifically? It it could be New Year's. It could be just goals that people set for themselves in general. Sure. Well, I think the same thing happens in both cases and I call it the motivation bubble. When people decide they're going to change their health behavior in some way, whether it's start exercising or changing their eating, it's their commitment and declaration and decisions and purchases and all the things that they do occur in this bubble of high intensity motivation. And it could be because of New Year's resolutions. It could be because their spouse is pestering them. It could be because their doctors warning them about prediabetes, whatever it is, it happens within this high motivation bubble. And 
you know, as the name implies, we're all really motivated in that bubble. The problem is, is that once real life hits, whether it's an unexpected, urgent work deadline or the call from school saying that um, your child is sick and you have to pick them up, whatever the unexpected thing is, it kind of, it, it puts a hole in the bubble and often it bursts the bubble because we have these, this all or nothing thinking when it comes to these behaviors. And so we feel like we've been taught to feel like when we, when one, when we miss one of our planned sessions, when we didn't eat exactly as we had planned to, we messed up and, you know, it bursts the bubble. Um, and then, you know, all hell breaks loose, if you will. The other thing that happens is that oftentimes we aren't aware of this, but oftentimes our motivation for initiating things, which is part of that kind of gets us in the motivation bubble is actually contaminated and we're not aware of it. Most, and, and I would say for most people, our motivation is contaminated when it comes to exercise or changing our dietary habits. And what I mean by that is coming out of self-determination theory, if we're initiating a behavior because we think we should do it, we've bought into the societal norms, we've bought into the notion, oh yeah, I should drop that 20 pounds, or oh yeah, my doctor's right, or oh, swimsuit, swimming suit season is coming, I, I need to look buff or whatever it is. Those motives are often contaminated by a sense of obligation, a sense of I'm not good enough the way I am. And I would say without fail most of the time, that contamination also can be what bursts our motivation bubble because research on dissonance theory shows that we are motivated to actually rebel against the things that we feel take away our freedom. So if we feel like we should exercise, then gosh darn it, I'm not going to. Or if we feel like we shouldn't eat the chocolate cake, gosh darn it, I'm going to. And so that's a big part of the phenomenon too. Well, I thought that was interesting in your book, No Sweat, talking about the, the, the goals are contaminated. Even like goals, not even goals like I want to look better in a bathing suit, but like goals like I need to lose some weight so I can get a control of my pre-diabetes or I need to exercise more so I don't have another heart attack. Even those goals can backfire. Yes, it's so counterintuitive. You know, when I started researching this topic, you know, which was back in 1994, I had assumed that when people initiated a lifestyle change for health-related reasons, whether it, you know, whether it was for current health or future health, that those were somehow pure motives and they should be really effective because, wow, what's more important than our health? And then uh, my colleagues and I conducted a study and we were really surprised to see that uh, people's motivational profile and how much they exercised were very similar to the to the participants who were exercising to lose weight. And you know, we already knew from other research that weight, you know, weight loss and body shaping is not a motivation that keeps most people motivated for the long term. But when we saw health, we were like, oh my gosh, how can that be? You know, I really I looked at these data with disbelief. But after you know, looking more into other literatures and thinking more about it. And by the way, that's the beauty of research is that when what you hypothesize doesn't turn out to be 
as expected, it forces you to think more deeply about your assumptions and, you know, the way you think the world works. And that's what happened in this case, because once we looked into it, it was clear that, you know, while health seemed like a really relevant motive, when it comes down to it, A, we can feel pressured to boost our health for, you know, in our society, people feel pressured to do healthy things. It's kind of a moral imperative, if you will. You know, just as a cultural norm, it, it we feel pressured by our doctors, we feel pressured by our families, we feel pressured by our employers. So there's a lot of pressure in there, which, you know, undermines uh, high quality staple motivation as well as motivating us to rebel often. But the other, and I think this might even if not equal, it's at least equal, if not greater. The other problem with initiating a quote unquote healthy behavior, you know, to boost health is that we, we live very busy, overly busy, full, hectic lives. And if you make a list of the urgent, compelling things that you have to get done every day, you know, health in theory is, is important, but it's not necessarily urgent or relevant today. And so it winds up not having what I call goal clout in that it it just doesn't have the clout to cut through the other things that we actually don't have a choice about doing. Well, yeah, that makes sense. I mean, like a goal like getting healthier, like you can't really see it, right? Like you can't tell, well, is my blood sugar down? Well, I can see, maybe check my blood sugar, but it's not like like I get my kids, like not 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 that concrete. So it just gets pushed to the back burner. And it's, that's part of it, but it's also it's also more than that because it's not just. I mean, yes, we need feedback um, to keep striving towards our goals, but you know, on a daily basis, if you say, you know, how relevant is is exercising for better health com- compared to all these other things. And all the, we don't have time to do all these other things, let alone in- add a behavior that doesn't make the list of the top 10. Well, and besides goals being contaminated or goals we set for exercise, um, how can people's ideas of exercise itself set them up for well, failure. Well, in addition to the goal topic that we've already talked about, you know, if we're aiming for future goals like better health or weight loss or you know, what another future-oriented goal, we know uh, research shows that people are much more motivated by immediate rewards, aka how do I feel right now as opposed to goal- rewards we have to wait for dropping 30 pounds in 6 months or avoiding disease, uh, diabetes at a certain point. So that's one thing. The other thing that really gets in the way is people's beliefs about what constitutes a valid session of exercise or a, you know, a good enough eating experience or eating choices. They're often, you know, overly lofty and ambitious and it really prevents us from doing anything. So if in order to successfully, you know, exercise or be a healthy eater, I have to achieve X, Y, and Z, and I can only achieve X, 
then why bother? So that's a really big thing. And, you know, it's no one's fault that they, that we have these beliefs because as a society, we have been socialized to have an all or nothing perspective on these topics, but that's a big reason people don't stick with it. Yeah. I mean, something that you talk about in the book is that people have this idea that exercise has to be hard. Like if you don't work up a good sweat and you don't feel like you're thrashed at the end of it, well, it, that doesn't count. That's exactly right. And you know what most people don't know, and even when people know this, it's still very hard to change these beliefs because they've been embedded for decades. But in 2018, in November 2018, the the physical activity guidelines were changed to restate something that they had basically originally said in 1996, which was that you can accumulate physical activity during the day and everything counts, everything. And I think, you know, knowing that science is really important for people to know. This isn't just a, gee, wouldn't it be nice if everything counted? And, you know, my walk down the block with my dog that takes, you know, five minutes total, that doesn't really count, but it does. And, and I think what I found in my coaching with individuals is that once people do start to believe this, that they actually discover that they're doing things that count, which makes them feel good and confident, which motivates them to do more, which makes them feel even better. And and then once people feel comfortable and confident that they can be successful this way, they actually wind up doing more and they often graduate to a next level, which might be you know, fast walking or going or joining a gym, but we need to give people permission, just like people do in kindergarten. Let's get successful on the little stuff and then let's graduate. And, you know, by the way, as you probably know, that's not, that's not a new message. Start small. That's, you know, common knowledge and education and, you know, everyone's kind of talking about it and it's not new. The problem is people still have trouble starting small. And it's because of the reasons, you know, we've been talking about. Well, so you talked about how we've been socialized to one think that you should exercise for specific reasons, right? It's like a, it's an external motivator put on you. So it feels like a should. We have these ideas of what exercise is that's been socializing. But the, people would hear this, okay, so yeah, that's what motive, that's what discipline, that's what willpower is for. If you can't stick to the goal, it just means you don't have enough willpower or discipline. But you make the case that willpower and discipline aren't enough to overcome our inability to keep exercising. Why is that? Well, it, it's, I would say that it's more than they're not enough. It's that the way our brain works, we, we have a finite amount. And while, you know, there is some research that shows that, you know, people can increase their self-control, it's also hardwired to a great extent. And so if there's a finite amount of, willpower and discipline, then, you know, banking on that as your, as your driver is, is not a very good idea. And the other thing is inherent in needing to use willpower and discipline is that you really don't want to do it. (laughs) So why not flip that on its head and figure out how to do things in ways that if they're not pleasurable, they're palatable and you deeply understand the immediate value of your choices, 
not only to yourself and your mood and your energy level, but the domino effect that those things have on the rest of your life, like your family and how you talk to your kids and your partner and how much energy and enthusiasm and creativity you bring to your job. So in your research, you've developed an approach to sustainable exercise, sustainable physical activity, and you've developed this program called MAPS, which is an acronym for Meaning, Awareness, Permission, and Strategy. And you use this with clients when you coach them. Let's dig into this, like this meaning component of MAPS. When you start off working with a client, like you ask them what exercise means to them, what are the most common answers you get to that question? Well, I start with this very broad categorization that I found to be very helpful that people really resonate with. And I ask people on a scale from one to five, one being a chore to five being a gift, you know, where do you sit on that continuum? That's really the beginning of the whole process. And, you know, if someone's coming to me, then most likely they're a one or a two, which is exercise feels like a chore. And then that's the perfect entree into, well, why does it feel like a chore? And then, you know, people explain the reasons why, and it might be, I hate to run, or I feel really uncomfortable in the gym. And, and those are, then you can say, well, why are you choosing that? Or what about being in the gym makes you uncomfortable? And so what you want people to do is to start to develop self-awareness about what deep down underneath the word physical activity or exercise, what does it mean to you? You know, it's a chore, if it's a chore or a gift and just getting people to assess that can be very eye-opening. And how does starting off, you know, an exercise goal with a, a faulty meaning, right? How can that create what you call the vicious cycle of failure? So first off, I guess would be the question is like, what does this vicious cycle of fa- failure look like? And then how does starting off with a bad meaning sort of kickstart all of this? Sure. So the vicious cycle of failure keeps you stuck. It's vicious because it harms people. It prevents them from being active in ways that would benefit them, and it makes people feel bad about themselves. So it's vicious in that way. It's the second way it's vicious is that we can't escape it. So the way it starts is what I call the wrong why, and and nothing is inherently wrong motivationally unless, A, it doesn't work for you, B, it makes you feel bad about yourself and see if research shows that it's actually not going to work for you because there's research about that. And so what happens is, is that I consider wrong wise to be things like, you know, focusing on weight loss, far away health goals, that sort of thing. What happens when you start with the wrong why, the beginning of the vicious cycle means that it feels like a chore from the get-go, from the get-go. And it doesn't, but the important thing about the cycle is it does get you motivated to start. And, you know, I'm just going to link back to my comment about the motivation bubble. It does get you to start in your motivation bubble, but eventually most people drop out or the bubble bursts and that, you know, they feel like failures, life gets too busy, whatever it is. And they, you know, they may stop for two weeks, two months, or two years, but eventually when they start again, it's always in search of the next wrong why. And that keep, that's what keeps us stuck in the vicious cycle. And, you know, the wrong whys are on magazine covers. They're um, the messages we might get from our employers that make us feel pressured. I mean, whatever it is, but you stay stuck. And it's because that's the only system 
we've learned in society. Yeah, and I think we've all experienced that vicious cycle of failure, right? You start off with this these good what do you think are good intentions? They they probably there are good intentions. Yeah. You fail, then you feel worse, which kind of demotivates you for a little bit. You can kind of go through that trough, where you're like, I just I'm not good at anything. It's never going to happen and then you kind of flagellate yourself to get back on the track and then it just goes over and over and over again. Exactly. And so when you work with clients and you're helping them figure out the meaning of exercise to them, like how do you, what's, what works? What have you found works um, for meaning so you don't start this vicious cycle of failure? Well, the way that you, so the meaning, when I, the way that huh, I mean it, the way that I've come to understand it is that the meaning, your meaning of exercise, whether it's a chore or a gift, is determined by number one, the reason why you're doing it, your goal or motive, and we've talked about that already. But the second is, the second part of meaning is is created by the experiences you have while being active. So if you're exercising in a way that you're exhausted, you're too tired to do, but you force yourself to do it, you know, some people might think that's a good thing. And, and some people do power through those, you know, that punishing type of feeling. And if it works for them, great. A lot of other people, it creates such a bad feeling that it actually you know, creates a negative association with exercise and unconsciously you want to avoid it. So the way you help someone create a new meaning, which I talk about extensively, the steps in my book, is you want to start to have positive experiences with physical activity. You want them to, to not only have positive experience with physical activity, you want them to start linking their reason for doing it which would, you know, research shows is literally it's better if the reasons are about immediate benefits versus these distal, you know, health-related logical goals. And if we're aiming for something positive now, then we have to make sure that our physical activity delivers that. So it's working with both of those things kind of synergistically get people to change their meanings. Yeah. So it sounds like you're, you're trying to help clients find physical activity that they actually enjoy doing. Just for the the thing itself. Well, enjoyment is a specific word, and you know, a lot of people use that word. I think because uh, we don't want, you know, I don't think exercise is enjoyable, you know, for everyone. And what you know, what I say is that we want to help people have some type of positive experience, or at least not a negative one. I mean, I've worked with people who say who say, you know, I just don't feel anything, Michelle, and. You know, at the beginning process of getting in touch with how we feel, some people don't even feel it. And it's because we've been taught to be disconnected from our bodies, whether it comes to eating or exercise. So it can be a process, but at least it's not negative. So, so for example, I like to walk outside. I wouldn't say I enjoy walking outside. I might say it feels good to walk outside. It lifts my mood to walk outside or it energizes me. So I think what we want to do is offer up kind of a menu of of potential benefits or, and rewards from moving that then people can, you know, pick their own. We're going to take a quick break for a word from our sponsors. With Indochino, it's all about you. You get to choose from hundreds of high-quality suit fabrics to pick the color, pattern, and weight you like best. Then you choose all the personal touches, including your lining on your jacket, the lapel you want, 
You can even put your monogram on your jacket. The customizations are all your choice and there's no extra cost. Your suit is also made with your exact measurements, so you end up with a perfect fit for the shape of your body. Besides custom made-to-measure suits, Indochino also sells custom shirts, coats, and chinos, so you can get a full custom wardrobe if you want. They've got showrooms all across North America, or you can do it all from your home at Indochino.com, which is what I did. Got my navy blue suit that I've talked about a lot on the podcast. The customization process was a lot of fun, and then the measuring process, super easy. You probably need one person to help you out. You put that all in there, and in about four weeks, three weeks, you get a custom made-to-measure suit sent directly to your door, and you're going to pay about the same price as you would for an off-the-rack suit at a department store. Right now, you can get an extra $30 off any purchase of $399 or more at Indochino.com when entering manliness at checkout, plus shipping is free. That's Indochino.com promo code manliness for $30 off your total purchase of $399 or more high-quality custom suits for an off-the-rack price. While being a man is an art form, taking care of your skin doesn't need to be. This year, make a resolution of stepping up your skincare and grooming routine with Brickle Men's Products. They have a full lineup of highly effective, natural, and organic skincare and grooming products engineered specifically for men's skin. Brickle's products are never made with harsh chemicals, and you can find anything you need to fulfill your skincare or grooming routine. You don't have one of those? No worries. Brickle makes creating a healthy skincare routine easy with helpful daily and nightly guides. So it starts off in the shower. They've got a body wash that's all natural, smells fantastic. They also got a conditioner and shampoo, also all natural, smells fantastic. I've been using those for the past few weeks. And then when you're done, you got to go to the your sink part of your grooming routine. They got the skincare routine with lotions, facial cleansers that'll just make you feel nice and clean and fresh. One to start you off in the day, then one to end of the night. So you're just looking, you're looking sharp and it's easy to follow. They got the guide for you to follow. So you're not confused about, oh, what do I use now? Do I use this first? Or that? No, they got it. They lay it all out to you. It's, it's, it's idiot proof right now. You can try 15 of their best sellers for free. You just have to pay shipping. Go to brickle.link slash manliness to get your sample kit today. That's brickle, B-R-I-C-K-E-L-L dot link. Remember, dot link slash manliness to get your free kit. All you do is pay shipping. Check it out, brickle.link slash manliness. And now back to the show. And this also means broadening the scope of what people consider exercise. Because oftentimes people narrow in like it's either running on a treadmill it's doing like CrossFit, it is doing, you know, some sort of weightlifting program and that's it. But there are other things they could do that could provide benefit, but they don't think about it because they've never even considered an option. That's right. That's exactly right. And it gets back to something that we were talking about earlier, which is that the physical activity guidelines, you know, officially says everything counts and anything is better than nothing. And But because we've been, you know, I will use this very intense word, we've been brainwashed that we, you know, have to do it in the way that you just said, that it's very hard to become unbrainwashed. But that is why, you know, I think that's why I developed the process I did, because I think we need to give people an opportunity. I call it exorcising exercise. We want to give people a chance to toss out the beliefs and attitudes and practices that you know, they discover are in their, really getting in their way. And that's, you know, that's why, you know, I use a process. I don't think it's enough to just say, change your beliefs, develop a new mindset, because there's this contaminated, heavy stuff below the surface of our consciousness that if we don't address it and basically burn through it, let it evaporate, let it out, it's always going to be below the surface. So, even if you try some of the strategies we're talking about, like starting small, if you don't address the negativity, the shoulds, the resentment, 
the punishing meaning you have for that five minutes, those things are going to rear their ugly heads and get in the way. No, this, one of the reasons why you're, when I found your book and I read it and it resonated with me is because I, my experience, it, it synced up with what you were talking about. So, you know, for years I had tried different exercise modalities. Like I should exercise. I need to do this. So I tried running that lasted, you know, a month or two. I tried different weightlifting things with like dumbbells and things. Didn't enjoy it. Tried a CrossFit thing that didn't last for very long. But then like three or four years ago, I discovered like barbell training and I like, I really enjoy this. And I like, I, I've, I've in the past four years, I've missed maybe a handful of workouts and it's not because like I I'm disciplined. It's like, I, I look forward to it. It's like, I, I enjoy moving my body in that way. And it, it's funny. It took me like almost a decade to figure that out. And just that idea of like, I enjoy moving my body. It's not unpleasant. I mean, it's unpleasant in its different way, but it's not like I d- dread doing it. It's helped me sustain this, this modality that I do. And you said it took 10 years, but the, you know, when you think about the majority of the population, you're way ahead of the game, you know, and I do want to say this, I don't know if I've ever said this before, but you know, I think this is a really good analogy in some ways, you know, when you do something intense, like you're talking about, cause it is pretty intense, right? Yes, it can be. Yeah. Okay. And what is, I'm trying to think of the name of, oh, um, it's very, quick high intensity weightlifting oh, and I don't know. Oh yeah. Is that what it, it's not hit, it's weightlifting. That's um no, I do like powerlifting type stuff, but um Okay, so that's different. Sure. But you know, you said you enjoy it and they're like, well it's not that it's not, you know, there isn't some challenge, but you know, it, it when you said that it reminded me of wasabi. Like, you know, I love wasabi and and it is painful sometimes, (laughs) but there's something about that experience that I enjoy. So, you know, but the, the difference, the, the, the big thing is, is that I'm choosing to eat the wasabi. It's not being forced on my throat. You're choosing to do that exercise. And research shows that while in general, you know, high intensity exercise, which is not what you're talking about, but in general, you know, exercise that is intense and hard in some ways, reduces people's displeasure. So that's not a good thing if your pleasure is reduced because you're not likely to keep going. If you autonomously choose to do the exercise and deeply autonomous, because a lot of times people say, well, I chose to go to Orange Theory, so doesn't that count? Well, if you're going to Orange Theory, you yeah, you chose to do it, but are you doing it out of the wrong why? Does it feel like a should? You know, those sorts of things. So when you choose those things because you deeply want to do it, then your displeasure may not go down or may not go up. So, you know, picking the experiences, even if they are challenging or slightly painful, like wasabi or whatever, as long as you're in control, it's going to have a different meaning than if, you know, if someone stuffed wasabi down my throat, it would be horrible, right? I'd hate it. So, and that's true with exercise. So someone might be hearing this say, okay, uh, with exercise, I just need to like, my why needs to be something that maybe I don't necessarily enjoy. It feels good. It's pleasant. I could, I can make that a meaning, but I can also make the meaning of exercise. Well, I'm, I'm going to lose some weight and look better. Can you have multiple meanings to exercise? So that's a really great question. And I, I think the short answer is that And I, you know, that there's been research that shows both sides. What 
the challenge with weight loss, and I'll give you an example. I I was working with a client who is wanting to eat in healthier ways, and she, you know, came to me pretty obsessed about losing weight and unhappy with her weight, you know, that she'd basically maintained for, you know, 20 or 30 years. And she, you know, she, she had been in the vicious cycle failure for that long. Like, and, and that was one of the questions I asked her, you know, have you tried to lose weight and eat in, in, in ways by focusing on your weight and doing it in an extreme way? And she's like, yes, that's how I've always done it. And I said, has it worked for you long-term? And she's like, absolutely not. It's never worked. And so I said, well, do you want to stop? Are you ready to stop hitting your head against the same wall? And in theory, the answer was yes. But as we were doing our work, you know, she kept talking about weight and focusing on the scale. And it's so in, to answer your question, if weight is in the equation, it contaminates your relationship with a behavior like physical activity. So you can say, yes, I want to enjoy it. But if you're, if you're a slave to your scale, then you really can't create a new meaning for exercise or other, you know, behaviors like it. So, you know, I, I, it's not that you shouldn't try to lose weight. It's that, you know, I, in my work with people, I say, put your desire for weight loss, pause it. You know, I, I really can only work with people who can pause it because otherwise I can't be, they can't be successful. And then once you've learned how to institutionalize physical activity into your life in sustainable ways, that means consistency through the ups and downs, then, you know, if you want to lose weight, focus on eating. And, the, you know, the other really important thing, and, you know, a lot of people know this, but a lot of people don't, eating beats out exercise by, you know, exponentially in determining how much we weigh. So if you want to lose weight, you know, exercise is good to, you know, for helping you sleep, for boosting your energy, for boosting your mood, all of those things would support better eating. But when it comes to calorie expenditure, you know, it's just not that effective. So if you want to lose weight, you're better off, I think, creating this foundation of physical activity, what's going to benefit your mental, your outlook, your mindset, your mood, which will then, when you're ready and when you've learned how to sustain physical activity, then focus on eating. I mean, and, you know, clients of mine have, have said that they've done that. And, you know, then I run into them in some cases and they're like, you know, I decided to start losing weight and I, you know, I joined a program like Weight Watchers and it was so much easier to do because I didn't have to think about exercise too. It was already a part of my life. All right. So that's meaning. The next part of MAPS is awareness. What do you mean by awareness? What does that look like? Well, awareness, you know, it's kind of a hard word to define. (laughs) It's really like being aware of and mindful of the beliefs you hold about physical activity. Is it, does it have to be hard and vigorous like you suggested earlier? Does it have to be done exactly the same every time I do it? Is it supposed to, is it going to, you know, help me drop 10 pounds? So awareness is really about helping people become aware of the beliefs they have about physical activity that either support or undermine it, as well as become aware of the true challenges they have to sticking with exercise. And is it like, is it other people in your life? Do they undermine you? Is it that 
you've picked a physical activity or a gym that takes an hour to get to. I mean, you know, really, is it simply the beliefs you have that it's hard and vigorous and you hate doing it that way? So awareness encapsulates both of those things, and that's part of the process. And it sounds like awareness also might involve being aware of what you enjoy or what feels good, what kind of movement feels good. And like, that's exactly right. Yeah. And, and, and absolutely. That. Yeah. Cause I mean, a lot of times people will, they, they, I think you talk about there's clients who were able to tell you things that they enjoyed, but they would just ignore it. Cause they're like, well, that's not exercise. It's like, you say, no, 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 no. You need to pay attention to that. And let's, let's focus on that. Absolutely. I mean, I had a, a client and he, you know, when, when, you know, at first people are like, I, I don't think I like anything. You know, that's a normal response based on a history that was full of negative experiences. And then, well, what, what did you like to do? This is like a classic, you know, cliche thing. Well, what did you like to do as a kid? Well, I like, I biked, I love to bike. And then this gentleman, you know, bought a, you know, a, a grown up bike and that, you know, during the summer months that became, the physical activity he did. And so, you know, search deep for the answer and then experiment. It's not like you're not marrying what you choose. You're actually just experimenting to see what works, what you like, what you don't. So moving from awareness, there's permission. What do you mean by permission? Is it just permission to to allow, just permission to enjoy exercise? Like think of exercise as a gift to you. Is that what you mean by permission or is it something broader? I mean two things by permission. Absolutely. Permission to get rid of the beliefs that get in your way. Permission to pick physical activities that are pleasurable or make you feel good. But the overarching permission that I talk about in the book is about permission to prioritize your own well-being and self-care. And, you know, a lot of people don't feel that it's that they have the right to take time out of their day or that it's worth taking time out of their day to feel good from physical movement. And, you know, the way that I help people, you know, give themselves permission is to help them understand you know, in, in real ways in between our sessions that, you know, if you do the, your, you know, selected healthy behavior, you know, how do you feel when you do it? How do you feel when you don't do it? And then how does the rest of your life go? And once people in a very real way begin to notice, gee, when I don't do this, I feel this way. And that really undermines, you know, I'm, grumpier when I talk to my kids. You know, I I feel resentful at work and certainly not creative. But when I do do it, it turns everything around. Then that legitimizes the time spent, whether it's getting an extra 30 minutes of sleep or walking for 20 minutes outside after work before you go home, whatever it is, it legitimizes that time because you, you begin to understand that, wow, this isn't just about feeling good. This is actually about everything else. This is about me feeling myself for what matters most. Yeah. I imagine this is, could be a really hard part of the program because I think a lot of people might listen to you. Yeah. I'm going to change my meaning. I can do that. But like, man, I'm, I'm so busy. I've got obligations with work, with family, with these other activities I'm doing. I just, it would be self-indulgent. I just don't have the time to do that. And that's something I'm sure you have to work a lot with your clients. This is the hardest issue. This is the hardest part of the process because at its core, this issue touches on what are we valuable for? Like what 
what are, you know, who are we and what is our value in the world? And so in society, we're rewarded for being successful at work. We, you know, we are rewarded, we feel rewarded for being good parents and partners and all that, but we're not rewarded for self-care and we're not rewarded to increase our sense of well-being. So that truly is the most difficult thing. And, um, you know, there's a couple things I want to say in response to that. Number one, one of the reasons people an interaction with this issue is that if people's goal, you know, plans are too lofty, yeah, it's really hard to fit in exercise if it has to be an hour as opposed to 10 minutes, right? So that interacts with this issue. The second thing is, is that a lot of people perceive, you know, people like me who advocates for this stuff and maybe you, you know, who does this regularly, people believe that, you know, we don't have any challenges and that it's just easy and effortless for us to, you know, to make it work. And, you know, I think it's really important to say that, you know, unless you're like my husband and some people are, I don't think most people are, I mean, he gets up every morning at five to do his exercise because that's what he needs to feel good during his day. But, I, you know, I still struggle. You know, I've got an inbox that's full that I want to get down. You know, I have work I want to finish. And sometimes I choose to take my walks. And sometimes I don't. And I think it's really important for people to know that I don't always choose to do the exercise. What I don't do is feel like a failure or, or think poorly and be very negatively judge our ourselves for that choice. That's That's one of the contaminators of motivation. When we judge ourselves negatively for not doing something, that's like an injection of, you know, poisoned motivation, if you will. And so I do think it's really important for people to give themselves a break, cut themselves some slack, and know that most people, you know, even those of us who seem successful or are successful, we don't do it all the time. So finally, the map's program that you have is strategy. And you've got six big ideas that to help people think about exercise and self-care differently to help help them overcome roadblocks they're going to probably encounter because they're busy, life happens. Let's talk about a few of these. The first one is this idea of making your exercise a learning goal as opposed to performance goal. What's the difference between the two and why are learning goals better? Sure. So, you know, in different fields, they use different terms. And you know, whether it's a performance goal goal or an achievement goal, it means you're aiming for something. It means when you're doing it, you're really focused on hitting the bullseye. And that creates a lot of pressure and stress. And research shows that in complex contexts, that type of goal in, you know, changing dynamic context, having that kind of goal is is going to be less effective for you to to achieve what you're trying to achieve than if you consider what you're doing as a learning goal. So for example, if, you know, I'm aiming to either lose 50 pounds through whatever I'm doing or I'm aiming to perfectly enact my healthy behavior goal 5, you know, 5 out of 5 days. Those would be considered, you know, achievement or performance goals. But if instead I'm thinking about this as a a project where, gosh, sometimes I'm going to get it, sometimes I'm not. But every time 
I do it, especially when I don't do it, it gives me an opportunity to learn and get better for the next time. And that takes the pressure off. Research shows that when people have these types of learning goals, they are, they have more intrinsic motivation, which is, you know, uh, one of the, you know, best type of motivation, intrinsic motivation in terms of sustainability. They have, they have greater persistence in the face of challenges. I mean, think about it. If you've got to be perfect and a challenge happens, what's the point of going forward? But if instead, you know, something happens and gets in your way, you're like, oh, okay, this happened. What can I learn about this? How can I do it differently the next time? You don't have to stop. You just have to pause and learn. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes that makes that makes perfect sense. And then another idea is this idea for strategizing is learning how to negotiate with yourself. What do you mean by that? And what does that look like? Well, you know, in a lot of areas of life, we have to negotiate. We have to negotiate you know, when we get jobs, we have to negotiate over who's going to do the dishes at night. You know, we have to negotiate all the time in all kinds of circumstances. And typically we don't, we, you know, we associate the word negotiate mostly with money, but, you know, really we, we always do have to negotiate ourselves and it gets back to the permission content that we talked about earlier, which is, okay, am I going, you know, this, the all or nothing thinking really if if that's what you're doing, you're not negotiating. So here's an example. Okay, I need I I plan to take a 45 minute walk outside, and I really want to finish this manuscript. So, what am I gonna do? You know, the way you negotiate is you go, okay. Well, I don't want to give up my walk, but I really I'm gonna be stressed out if I don't. You know, make progress toward this finishing this manuscript. So negotiating would be well. How about we split the time 50-50 or, you know, at this moment, finishing that manuscript has some urgent urgency associated with it. So maybe I'll do 35 minutes and give myself 10 minutes of the walk. So it's, it's really understanding that we do have to negotiate with ourselves and, um, you know, when it comes to this stuff. So when I was been talking about this, you know, we've been talking about exercise, but this, this maps program you develop, it sounds like it could work for other habits that people want to develop as well. Absolutely. And, and, you know, uh, that's true. And I've used it for other things and clients who worked with me with exercise, for example, on their own have used maps in other areas, including eating. You know, I had someone contact me really, I don't know, over a decade later who said that, um, she had had to have hip surgery, you know, just a regular kind of aging related thing. And in her recovery period, you know, she used maps to help her do what she needed to do with her physical therapy and the the meaning she brought to what she was doing. So yeah, maps really can be used for anything. So we've talked kind of big picture and there's a lot more details in your book, but like say someone's listening to this, like, okay, I want to start implementing this today. What, what would you say like the one or two things that you would recommend someone doing today so that they can start making exercise a sustainable part of their life? Well, I think the first thing I would say to them, you know, be very clear about whether your intention to do this is truly yours or if you're doing it out of some type of should. And, you know, if it's truly yours, then move forward and 
you know, find something that you want to do, you know, if, if you want to do it with your family or alone in nature, what, find something that's, that really feels like it would work for you. And then experiment with, you know, whether it gives you what you're hoping for, how to fit it into your life. You know, there's all these logistical issues people have to figure out. If it feels like it should, when you really ask yourself to be honest, then the question is, well, why? And, you know, why does it feel like it should? And, 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 you know, are you willing to maybe let go of that and instead decide to fuel yourself in some way? So I would say that's the beginning phase. Well, Michelle, this has been a great conversation. Where can people go to learn more about the book, No Sweat, and your work? I have a website that's michelleseeger.com and there's information about the book. There's some blog posts, um, that sort of thing. So yeah, it's been such a pleasure to speak with you. Well, Michelle Seeger, thanks so much for time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. My guest today was Michelle Seeger. She's the author of the book, No Sweat. It's available on amazon.com and you can also find out more information about her work at her website, michelleseeger.com. Also check out her show notes at aom.is slash no sweat where you can find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM Podcast. Check out our website at artofmanliness.com where you can find our podcast archives as well as over 3,000 articles we've published over the years about how to be a better man and how to take action on being a better man. And if you'd like to enjoy ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast, you can do so on Stitcher Premium. Head over to stitcherpremium.com, sign up, use code MANLINESS to get a free month trial. Once you're signed up, you can download the Stitcher app on Android or iOS and start enjoying ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate if you take one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or whatever podcast podcast player you use. It helps out a lot. If you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you would think would get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. Until next time, this is Brett McKay reminding you not only to listen to the AWIN podcast, but put what you've heard into action. Mm-hmm.